Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Welcome to our 14th and final lesson in the Gospel of John. Today we'll be covering John chapters 20 and 21 regarding the resurrection and ascension of our Lord. This is one of my favorite Gospels as it has so many unique stories and so much unique insight into our Savior's life. I hope this has been an encouraging study for you, so join us as we begin today's lesson. Father, we thank you for this day and for being here with us. As we study your word, open our hearts. Thank you for granting us this time. And uh, thank you for your Holy Spirit who guides us in all truth. Ask that now that you would teach us as we look at this, this final two chapters of John. In Christ's name, amen. Um, we're in John chapter 20. And um, talking about the resurrection and uh, commissioning of Peter in 21. Now, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went down to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple. Who's the other disciple? John. Whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, when you compare this with other the other gospels, what do you, what do you know went on? In the meantime, what happened? Remember? The angels came down, rolled the stone away, right? Guards fell as if they were dead. Yeah, freaked the guards out. I mean, just scared the scared them to death. Um, who was expecting? Who thought uh, Christ would rise again? The Pharisees. They're the only, they thought that someone would actually steal the body away. Um, the idea of resurrection was not on their radar, but at least they they remember, well, you know, he said he was going to rise again. We better make sure there's a guard down there. So, of course, they have the Roman guard down there. But we know from the other Gospels, of course, that um, that two angels came down. They rolled the stone away, and uh, Christ was not there because he had risen. And Mary Magdalene, of course, comes to the tomb, and she just... Now, why did she come down to the tomb? Right, because they had, it had been so quick. Remember, they wanted to get it in there so quickly. Now, Nicodemus did some um, embalming there, but uh, she wanted to come down and anoint the body for burial. Um, and, of course, she was very close to Christ. She was not his wife, <laughs> in spite of what the Da Vinci Code says. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> yeah, but... um. Yeah, but Mary Magdalene came down there, and she, of course, did not, you know, she saw the stone rolled away. Um, and, of course, what was her immediate thought? Someone had taken the body. They stole the body, all right? So she ran back and told the other two disciples, Peter and John. And Peter, therefore, went out, and the other disciple who were going to the tomb so they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. John was a little bit faster than Peter. And he's stooping down um, and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes there. Peter, of course, being the 
very precocious one. He just blew by John. He didn't wait to see. He was not the cautious kind of guy. He just dived in. And uh, what he see? He saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came into the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the other disciple went away. The disciples went away again to their own homes. Here we have the resurrection of Christ. And what's interesting here, you know, as you compare this passage and really, you know, really to do justice to the resurrection of Christ and to this, you got to compare all four Gospels to really understand what's going on. But the basic thing here is that when you look at um, Christ's resurrection, it's interesting to note that no one, his, and that includes his disciples, no one thought that he would rise again. That was not on the radar. And it says right here in verse uh, 9, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Now, although Christ told them on multiple occasions, it never sank into their heads. And as far as they were concerned, when Christ died, everything was gone, right? Yeah. I mean, look at the guys on the road to Emmaus, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They said, we thought he was the one, and he's dead. And now it's the third day. To them, their world had come crashing down around their ears. They thought Christ was the Messiah. They thought he was the one, and he's dead. And they were depressed by it. The last thing they expected was Christ to come out of the tomb. And here they come to the tomb and they find not only the stone rolled away, but they find the tomb empty. Now, we know from the other Gospels, what else did they see there? The linen wrap. They saw the linen wrap, right? And what else did... But two angels. Two angels, all right? This doesn't have the account of the two angels. And that's why... When you look at this, you got to put them, put all of the gospels together to get the full picture. But um, in the other gospel, we find in one of the other gospels, we find the two angels were there and said, "Why are you looking for the dead among the living? The living among the dead. I mean, um, he's not here, but he is risen." They didn't expect Christ to rise again from the dead. Now, why is the resurrection so important? Yeah, without the resurrection, you might as well just quit right now, go to Applebee's and have a good time. Yeah. Really, I mean, without without the resurrection, um, our faith, our religion is vain. Paul says in Romans, or First Corinthians 15, the resurrection is what is the hinge. And why why is that? Why is the resurrection such an important thing? Doesn't it confirm uh, God's acceptance of the sacrifice? It proves that. What Christ said was true, right? Again, again, he said, um, I have the power to lay my life down. I can take it up again. And in fact, in Romans 1, 4, it says he was declared to be the son of God with power. Um, Paul in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, talks about Christ. And he talks about Christ being the son of David. How did you know that Christ was the son of David? They had the lineage, right? He could track it back. How did you know Christ was the Son of God? Which was? Rise again. 
And that's the point Paul is making in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. How do I know Jesus was the son of David? Well, he checked his lineage. He had the pedigree. How do I know he was the son of God? He rose again from the dead. And that's the validator, really, of everything that Christ said. Christ said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I like the life part, right? And he rose again from the dead. He said he would die, and he rose again. Um, the resurrection proved that Christ was God, right? Who else could rise again from the dead but God? And also um, gave validation to all of his teaching about those who follow him have eternal life. Yeah. Because he has eternal life. Right. So if he just you know, lay in the grave dead and, you know, just throw away, then that wouldn't hold any significance at all. No, it wouldn't. And, and the important thing here, too, and really we don't have time. We can only scratch the surface here because, you know, to really do an analysis of the resurrection, we could be here weeks. We're not going to do that. Um, but the resurrection of Christ is important in the sense that it was a physical bodily resurrection. See, there's a lot of people that say, well, yeah, he rose again in the sense that he is ever living in their hearts. You know, kind of some mumbo-jumbo kind of thing. Um, Christ rose again in their, in their thoughts. He really, it was not a physical resurrection. Or some would even say that Christ appeared to them in like a ghost form. You know, he was not, he was sort of a spirit. Um, he, he showed up as a spirit form. Why is the physical bodily resurrection so important? Mm -hmm. When God created us, God created us a spiritual and a physical being, did he not? He didn't create just a spirit being. He created a spirit and us, and we'll, we'll say an immaterial and a material component of you. When you come to Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're born again, right? What happens when you're born again? What, is, what does he do with your identification with Adam, according to Romans 5? Huh? It's died. It's gone. You're dead. Um, you're crucified with Christ in a sense that your identification, remember Romans 5, if you study Romans, Romans 5 is about you, who you're identified with, one of two people, Adam or Christ. Every human being that's ever lived is going to be identified with one of those two people. You're, you're identified with Adam by virtue of your existence. You're born. And in Adam, all die. Adam is spiritually dead. When Adam ate that fruit, he passed not only his spirit, his imputed guilt, the guilt is imputed to you, but also the corruption comes to you, right? Now let's think about this theologically. Why is it, when we talk about this, usually when I was growing up, we talked about original sin and sins. All right? And the question is, what is original sin? Yeah, it's what you're born with. Okay? And the question, you know, they fought about, well, how does original sin come to you? Is Adam's guilt imputed directly to you? Right? 
or is Adam's guilt imputed to his son who was born in sin, who was born in sin, his son was born in sin, his son, and eventually you are born in sin. The federal headship view, remember? Or the other view? Which ones are true? Both. Both are true. All right? Both are true. I am a sinner because when I was born, God imputed the sin of Adam to me. And you say, well, that's not fair. I didn't do it. Well, you would have. All right. And Paul says, lest you think God is unfair for imputing the guilt of Adam to you, you know, be glad that he, he imputes the righteousness of Christ to you. Right? You want to play hardball and you don't want the imputed guilt of Adam, then you don't get the imputed righteousness of Christ. Following? So when you become born again, what does God do? God takes the imputed guilt of Adam, all right, that was given to you by virtue of your existence in the human race, and that is imputed to Christ. Christ's righteousness is computed, imputed to you. So what God does is God removes that original guilt. We'll call that original guilt. All right. But there's another component of humanity. And what's that? Your corruption. Right. Why do you sin? You're corrupt. We live in a fallen flesh. Right. That's the thing we lug around. And that's the whole discussion of Romans seven and eight, six and seven. Our flesh, the fighting and the war that we have in our flesh. All right. And where does that flesh reside? In the physical body. All right. So if you're going to get to heaven, what does God have to do something with? Your flesh. Your physical body. All right. So why is the resurrection of Christ in a physical form so important? Because it tells me that someday I'm going to get a new physical body. I'm not going to rise again as a glorified ghost in heaven and live there as a spirit. I'm going to get a body. And God's redemption not only applies to, and this, understand what, it, what, what this is here, the extent of the redemption that Christ accomplished not only applies to your immaterial self, your soul and spirit, rather it also applies to your body and ultimately to the universe, Right? Redemption reverses the sin-stained universe that was started by Satan when his rebellion and then when Adam sinned. So for your glorification, and that's the message of Romans 8, for your glorification to be complete, what also do you have to have? A new body. Christ's redemption goes to your new body. Now, if you say, well, if I'm going to get a new body, what about the one I have? Well, what about the one you have? Can God do anything with it? Well, it is, but can't, can he? Now, it, we can be transformed. He can do that. All right. But the flesh is enmity against God, right? It's not subject to the law of God. It can't be. When do we lose our fallenness? When do we lose our... And think of the fallenness as this. What is your fallenness? What is that? 
We talk about your corruption. What is that? Inclination. Your inclination to do evil. And we all have that, don't we? Isn't there another way of looking at that is saying that at that point in our lives, Satan is our master? Um, no. Who, who is your master? Outside of Christ, who's your master? Yourself. Your flesh. Now, Satan works through the flesh, of course. All right. But I, I don't think it's theologically correct to say my master is Satan because that makes my sin reside with who? Right. It doesn't, does it? Um, again, theologically, my greatest fight is not against Satan. And it's not against the world. Both of those are very important. We don't want to minimize that. But that's not where my real struggle lies. Where does my real struggle lie? With my flesh. Because how does Satan tempt me? Through my flesh. How does the world get at me? Through my flesh. Through your flesh, doesn't that make him your master? Satan is not your master in the sense that, how can I put it? Satan is not your master in the sense that he makes you sin. I mean, if you look at Romans 6 and 7, Paul there talks about the sin, our sin, the flesh, basically. And Romans 6 and 7 puts the, puts the, um, the, the uh, cause of our sinful acts, not on Satan, but on our sin nature, our flesh. That's what causes me to sin. I just wanted to ask where you said for the, um, the, the physical body that we will have. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood do not inherit the kingdom of God, neither God's corruption inherits incorruption. Right. So if it says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, what does that say? We'll have a physical body. Our current body, which, which he, he uses the flesh and blood to talk about. He's, what Paul is saying, our current physical body, the body that we have now, cannot um, inherit heaven. It is not suited for heaven. Because of the corruption of the sin nature. Because of the corruption of the flesh. What God has to do is he has to transform us. And that's what... It says we shall all be changed. The idea there is metamorphos will be converted into something else. We will receive a different body. All right, a body suited for eternal heaven. And that's part of the salvation package that we get. Okay. I had a very interesting conversation with one of my coworkers about these very things today. He and I were talking and he was sticking with me on some issue, but then uh, at some point the discussion turned to religion and faith. And uh, I mentioned about how you know when Adam uh, sinned and, and, and the world, you know, corruption entered the universe, and the man was fought. We all fell with, as a result of Adam. And he just really all of a sudden was a different person. I don't believe that. That's not true. I said, Yeah, it is. It is. The Bible teaches you. And he just really didn't want any part of mm -hmm. it. I mean, just vehemently denied it. And, and I said, well, you know, what do you think? And he just, he said, well, 
I can't accept a God who will charge me for something somebody else did. I said, well, consider this. If you have a perfect, just God who is totally holy and righteous, under his standard, what do you deserve? Just being you and having done what you've done to this point in your life, what do you deserve from this God? He didn't want to answer that question. <laughs> Romans 5 clearly teaches that, that we have the imputed guilt of Adam given to us. In Adam all die. But it also says that those of us who are born again have the imputed righteousness of Christ given to us. All right? It's imputed to us. We also have the corruption of the flesh resident in our body. How is that dealt with? That is dealt by, with by resurrection or transformation in the case of of those who are alive when Christ returns. And and the, the physical, bodily, literal resurrection of Christ is important because it was the validator that there is a physical, literal, bodily resurrection for us. It displays Christ's power over sin. What does the Bible say? The wages of sin is death. Christ rose again, conquering sin. And here's the nice thing about it. In your resurrected body, you can't sin. How do you like that? I mean, it'd be great to get to heaven and God say, okay, um, you're here, but, you know, wait a minute. There's one tree over here you're not allowed to eat of. Well, you know, we'd empty heaven out in short order, right? Because our, our fallen human nature is not subject to God's laws. It can't be. God has to give us a completely new body. And that's what's going to happen. Christ, or Paul talks about being transformed. Who is going to deliver me from the body of this death? He asks in Romans 7. And the answer, of course, is God will deliver me from the body of this death. And how is he going to do that? He's going to give me a new one. A new body that's not tainted by the corruption of the flesh. It's not subject to sin, and it's not stained by sin. But the resurrection of Christ proves that not only was Christ rose again from the dead, but we will rise there. Well, it was a validator of everything that Christ said. And also it's going to prove that Satan will be destroyed. Right? What power, did, according to Hebrews, what was the great power that Satan had over the sinners? The fear of death. And what has Christ done? He's destroyed him that has the fear of death. Taking the sting out. That's what um, 1 Corinthians 14 or 15 says. The where, oh, grave, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Well, in Christ there isn't any. And the resurrection is the validator of all that. The resurrection is... So, someone wanted to ask, you know, what is the greatest day in history? was the greatest day in history? The greatest day in history, I think, was the resurrection. Because what did that do? It proved everything that Christ said. If Christ has stayed in the grave, our faith is vain. Now, Admittedly, the, the, the crucifixion of Christ is a close second, right? But the greatest day was when Christ walked out of that tomb because it validated everything he said.
And in fact, it showed his, in Colossians, it talks about him triumphing over the demonic forces in his resurrection. And because Christ lives, we're going to live also someday. And uh, of course, some thinking about, about this whole thing, the bodily resurrection of Christ is important, but what, what proofs are there? I mean, there have been a lot of people who have done research on this to try and uh, come up with a proof of why they believe Jesus, you know, or they try to disprove it. Like Lee Strobel, I think, the cause for, or the, the um, what's his book? Um, Case for Christ. You know, he tried to disprove it, and he wound up being a Christian. Everybody who's really done any kind of study from a legal perspective all the way down has can only come to one conclusion. Christ rose again from the dead. It's a validated, validatable fact of history. And, and how do you know that? I mean, how do you know that Christ rose again from the dead? Well, you have the resurrection appearances, right? And, 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 and by the way, Christ, you got to understand, Christ did not appear to people that was expecting him to show up. It's not like everybody was anticipating this. The last thing they expected was Christ to show up. In fact, most of them were completely disenchanted. They thought their world had come to an end. Actually, the dispatchers actually helped prove it by the fact that they took extra measures to make sure that they didn't steal the body away and fake his resurrection. Yeah. But in doing so, they actually validated even the more because they charged, they bribed those guards to and told them not to to, to lie. To lie. Mm-hmm. But you've got Christ appearing to the guards at the tomb. That freaked them out. Um, Mary Magdalene, here in the next few verses, is going to appear to her. He appears to the other women, Matthew 28, 9 through 10. He appears on the road to Emmaus. He appears to the ten disciples, twice. He appears to them all at the ascension. And Colossians says he appeared over 500 at one time. He also appeared to his brothers, right? James and them. Not only that, the dead people came out of the tomb. Yeah. He was resurrected, went into the city, and witnessed of his resurrection. Now, it's interesting, you know, being carnal people like we are. If we had risen from the dead, who would we have showed up to? I'd have paid Caiaphas a visit, you know? Caiaphas and Annas. Well, he's dead. I would, I would have showed up to Pontius Pilate. Said you should listen to your wife. Amen, amen. Yeah. Um, I would have, I would have probably showed up to Herod. You know, why didn't he? That wasn't his motive. And you know what? Someday they're, you know, they're going to have a tough enough time. All right, they're going to have a tough enough time. But Christ rose again, and he appeared, you know, we have multiple appearances in multiple locations to multiple people. And some said, well, you know, just they're all hallucinating. Nah, they weren't hallucinating. You don't hallucinate. 500 people at once don't hallucinate. All right. This was widespread. He appeared to many. And last of all, who did he appear to? Paul. All right. Paul saw the resurrected Lord. Um this, this is a, and, and they saw a person there. And it's interesting, um, when Christ, in the end of John here, when he 
appears on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, what did he make? Breakfast. And and he ate, right? Now, did you ever see a ghost eat? No, only in the movies, right? All right. Yeah. The whole point. Yeah, the whole point of what Christ, that John is making is we saw a physical being. This wasn't a ghost. Who? Did, what did Thomas touch? Something solid. All right. This is not a ghost that appeared. And then another validator of this is the empty tomb, right? Now, the Pharisees, they, they, their biggest fear was that this would turn into some movement, right? So what could they have done to kill Christianity at the beginning? Yeah, here's the body. Here's the body. Here's the king. Here he is right here. Now, he's only dead three days, so he's not putrefied yet or anything. He still recognized him. I mean, all they had to do was show the body. And Christianity would have been done from the day before it got started. Why didn't they show the body? There wasn't one. They couldn't get it. Okay. Um, and then some say, well, you know, the disciples stole the body. Well, now, wait a minute. All right. The last thing the disciples expected was Christ to rise again. Right. They were totally demoralized. And they're going to they're going to take over a Roman legion or a group of Roman soldiers and overpower them? Come on. Um, wasn't it a cohort? Yeah. Yeah. And and the other thing is with the Roman soldier, if you lost what you were guarding, you were dead. You were dead. Um, you have the empty tomb, you know. Um, the other thing here is you have the human witnesses. Here's a group of men who all except one were martyred preaching the resurrection of Christ. Now look, if 11 guys got together and said, let's come up with a hoax, you'd expect one of them to do what? Fold or crack before it was over, right? They, they all wouldn't go to their deaths. And some of them, you know, in pretty, pretty grotesque ways, they would not go to their death believing this if it was a big hoax. They preached the resurrection of Christ. And it was a very real thing to them. It was a thing so real that they were willing to lay down their lives to believe in this thing. Now, look, if it was a big, it was something they just made up over pizza and beer or whatever they had in those days, they would not have died for it. And not only that, but, but the whole message of Christianity is on what? Truth, right? And one of the greatest virtues of the Christian faith is truth. You're telling me that a religion based on truth and honesty and integrity is built on a lie? That stretches the credulity a little bit, doesn't it? That these same men would go out and preach that, that God is truth and in him is no darkness at all, only to realize that behind the, in the back of their mind that they just made this whole resurrection thing up. That doesn't make any sense. Then you have the change in the disciples, right? Before the, before the resurrection, where were they? Where were they? Hiding. 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 And in fact, until the Holy Spirit showed up, where were they? 
hiding. And then when the Holy Spirit came, what happened? They went out and boldly preached. Why? Because they had the resurrected Lord. They were totally transformed. I mean, before, the, before that, they were a bunch of wusses, right? They all ran every which way. When Christ was taken, they all ran off. And now all of a sudden, you've got them preaching boldly. You've got Peter standing up telling the Jews, you crucified your Messiah. Yeah. I mean, everybody saw this. This, this is a dramatic change. How can you, how can, you know, if you look at Christianity, some, someone might say, well, you know, how do you prove that there's a God? Look at the transformed life of Christians. That's got to come from somewhere. And it's not from what they're drinking or smoking. Yeah, it's not one or two. It's, it's thousands, millions, whose lives have been totally transformed and turned around. There's a reality there. You know, it, um, the the uh, Ellie, who was the exchange student that stayed with us and came to know the Lord before she went back to Germany, I asked her, you know, what was it that started her believing there was a God? Because she came as an atheist. I mean, she grew up in East Germany. There was no God. You know, religion is the opiate of the people, and it's for people who are weak and on and on and on. And she said, well, she said, when I looked around, she was here in the youth group. She said, when I looked around, I saw people praying. There was something on their face. told me that there was something real there. I saw it in their face. The transformed life of the disciples is, is another validator of this. Um, also, the day of worship was changed, right? From Sabbath, Saturday, to the first day of the week, Sunday. Men on the first day of the week in commemoration of the resurrection of Christ. You look at this, and there's so many proofs of the resurrection of Christ that, quite honestly, anybody who says he did not rise again from the dead is really not paying attention to the evidence. They're not paying attention to it at all. I heard a preacher preaching one time, too, and he said another important thing to look at. He said, because Christ was able to take an instrument of death and turn it into a symbol of hope. If you think about the cross, when, when people in Jesus' day saw that cross, it caused them to fear and be afraid. It was but death to them. It was death to them. Not only just death, but pain and suffering and anguish. Sure. The worst possible thing that could happen to you would be standing there in front of you. But now for us, we see that cross and we hang it in our churches. We wear it around our necks. We got it hanging from our visor. That's an instrument of death. Mm -hmm. And yet Christ, when he died on it, he transformed it to, an instrument, to a symbol of hope. Mm -hmm. Yep. Now, 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 some people try to explain away the resurrection. You know, they, they got the swoon theory. That was a popular one, which is really, you know, Christ passed out on the cross. Now, let's think about this. Number one, here's a guy who's, who's just got the skin ripped off his back, literally, right? Yep. Had nails put through his uh, hands and feet, hanging for at least six hours on the cross, had a spear thrust into his side. Then he was wrapped up tight and stuck in a tomb. He was just passed out. You have professional Roman soldiers who knew when, you knew dead when they saw it. He got by them. And not only that, but in his weakened state, having 
all the blood loss and everything, he got up, rolled a big massive stone away, which must have weighed several hundred pounds, beat up a bunch of Roman soldiers, and took off into the night. Right, right, right. Okay, right, right. It's the it's the it's the absurdity. Here's the point: people who don't want to believe don't believe because they don't want to believe. And it really doesn't matter what evidence they have. They don't care. It doesn't matter to them. They'll come up with some harebrained screwball idea to try and disprove it. And, and these are these are the you know the eggheads of the world. The latest thing on Fox News, they're talking about how evolution has the, the big question they have is how evolution has allowed a woman to adapt so she doesn't fall over when she's pregnant. You see that on Fox News? Oh yeah, it's on Fox News about, you know, they're trying to figure out how evolutionarily a woman, a female was able to evolutionarily adapt so that she could maintain her balance while pregnant. Wow, that's, okay, that's that's a good couple million dollar research project there. Yeah, good night, you know. But But the point is, yeah, when people don't want to believe, it doesn't matter. If Christ would have showed up to the Pharisees, they wouldn't have believed anyhow. Because their unbelief was a decision that was confirmed by God. You don't want to believe, now you can't believe. You realize to those religious leaders, they were in the perfect position to observe and see all things concerning Jesus Christ. Before, during, and after his death and his resurrection. They're, they were in the position, because they were putting themselves in that position, to make sure that something amiss didn't happen, so they could disprove it, which actually put them in the perfect position to actually have that verification to be beyond disputed. And the shame of it is they get to think about that all of eternity. Christ was in front of them, and they missed it. They missed it. Yeah, that's, that's going to make it rough for them. They have no excuse. None. Zero. And then there, of course, there are the people who say, well, there's a theft theory. The, the disciples came and stole away the body. Well, the disciples weren't expecting him to rise anyways. They were all scattered. They were scared out of their mind. They were hiding in an upper room. They're going to go down and, and overpower a Roman guard and steal the body. And not only that, but they would then formulate a religion based on a lie and not only that they would then die for that boy you know I, you can believe in evolution quicker than you can believe in that and then you got the hallucination theory right well they were just hallucinating you know they just thought they saw Jesus Mary Magdalene just thought she saw Jesus now look Mary Magdalene was coming down there to anoint the body she was in the middle of grief was she expecting Jesus to show up no no that's the last person she expected to show up. No one expected him to show up. You can't hallucinate on that. And then you've got the 500 people at once issue, right? Has anybody ever tried to advance a theory that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they were in charge of the burial site, that they didn't put the body in the tomb? So well, that, that, they had something by game that they wanted to undo the burial. Well, see, that, was, that that goes that's a variation of the wrong tomb theory. There's another one that comes along and says, "Well, you know, Mary, she just got the wrong tomb." No, no, I mean just okay. 
All right. Or, or, you know, or, you know, the other. Well, you got to understand when the Roman soldiers roll that stone and what did they make sure was in there? Yeah, because it was their life. Look, you got to understand their life was on the line. We got to prove that he's dead. I mean, if that if he gets out and walks out of there, we're dead. We get to take his place on the cross. The last thing they wanted is Christ to come out of there. Not only that, but the Roman governor put a seal on the tomb. And according to that, if you broke the seal, you were guilty of a capital crime. Um, they want to make, and, and he's not going to put a seal on there unless he does what? Yeah, the body's there. Want to make sure we got, yep, you know. No, there, there's a body there. Huh? Yeah. Yep. That it wasn't their fault. Yeah, because because had and, and see the answer to that. This is interesting. Any theory you come up with, is if you look at the facts regarding it, there's an answer there for it. Yeah. Well, what what if Nicodemus and Joseph didn't put the body in there? Well, you've got the Roman soldiers who are guarding the tomb, sealing the tomb, ensuring that the body is there, right? They made sure it was there. Um, you know, and, and the tomb is where? Well, it's right next to where he was crucified, right? So they didn't switch the body on the way to the burial place. You, you look at and every every combination of screwball idea you can come up with has got an answer in the facts. One of them is the wrong tomb theory. Well, well, Mary, she just got to the wrong tomb. She just made a mistake on the wrong tomb. Well, number one, not only did she make a mistake, but did a Disciples made the mistake. Not only that, but the Roman authorities would have made the mistake, right? And what did what? And by the way, the Pharisees. Do you do you believe the Pharisees wanted to make sure he was in that tomb? Oh yeah. Now what could they have done? Wait, you got the wrong tomb. It's tomb B, not tomb A. Here's the body. Christianity's over with. No. Actually, they thought they were in control of the whole long way. Yeah. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most historically validated events of history. It explains it explains Christianity. Nothing else can. Nothing else can claim the origin of Christianity. Nothing else can prove it more than the resurrection of Christ. And without that, there is no Christianity. Christianity would be dead. And what Paul said, we'd still be in our sins. No, it's 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 proven. You're gonna say something, Alan. I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, I was just gonna say that the, the Pharisees, um, two of their own, put the body in. Yeah. So I mean, there could not have been the wrong tomb. No, and Nicodemus, and, and by the way, Nicodemus and Joseph, would did, were they looking for a resurrection? No. The point is, nobody was looking for it. That's the point. Anybody who would have buried him were not thinking, hey, let's steal the body and let's lie about it. That's the last thing on their mind. No one thought he was going to rise again from the dead. They were thinking, let's take good care of him because when he comes back. Yeah. <laughs> they wouldn't use all that expensive spices and ointment they put on him if they knew he was getting out of there in three days. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, say that for somebody that's really dead. <laughs> In verse 11, Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down, looked in the tomb, and saw two angels there. And white sitting one at the head and the other feet where the body of Jesus lay. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said, because they have taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. Um, she did not find the wrong tomb. She found the right tomb. 
When she said this, they, she turned around, saw Jesus standing there, did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? So there's Christ standing there. Now, there's whole all kinds of explanations. Well, how did she not recognize Jesus? Well, Jesus had a glorified body at this point, right? And apparently, and, and you know, you got to read between the white spaces, but apparently, what did he have the ability to do? Himself or yeah, he appeared differently. He appeared differently. Um, and I think this this is an you know our resurrection body. We're going to be recognizable as who we are, but we're not going to we're going to be different than what we are now, right? I'm not going to go through eternity bald with glasses. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Someone said, you're so ugly, the only hope for you is the resurrection. I think that's true. Um, the point, we're going to be different. I mean, we're going to be recognizable, but we'll, we'll have a glorified body. She, and, of course, Mary Magdalene is not expecting Christ to rise again, right? So she didn't recognize him. And not only that, but the two guys on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize him either, did they? All right. So Christ had the ability in his glorified body to hide his his true form or what I you know we don't we're not given the answers to that we do know that she didn't recognize him immediately and she thought he was the gardener she thought he was the one that maintained the garden there and in the area that the tomb was in could you also look at that and maybe say you know she knew that Jesus was dead and she so this can't be Jesus because Jesus is dead. He looks a little bit like him, but no, that's not, can't be. He's dead. We're not given that. We do know that she didn't recognize him. And then she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Where did you take the body? You took it out of the tomb. Where did it go? And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is say, teacher. So Christ revealed himself to her. And probably he spoke in such a way that she recognized his voice. And Jesus said, do not cling to me. Some verses have touch. The word there, hopto, means to cling to, to grab onto, to hold onto, to not let go. Jesus said, don't hold on to me. Why? Because I have not yet ascended to my Father. Now, somebody have had this idea that, well, Christ didn't want her to touch him because then that would have tainted him. That's not what this, that's not what this is. That's not the issue here. The issue is, Mary, I have to go. Don't hang on to me. I have to leave. I have to go to my father. But I want you to go to my brother and say to them, I am ascending my father and your father and to my God and your God. What's the significance of that statement? And that, that was a radical worldview change. Because as the Jews, what did you recognize God as? The untouchable, the holy, the, you know, I can't get to him behind the veil. And all of a sudden, he's my father. In Christ, I'm going to go to my father and your father. Wow. Total change. 
Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples he had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. So she comes and tells the disciples. Now John and James, or John and Peter know this. She says he rose again. He's going back to the Father. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, so Sunday evening, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, these guys are not, you know, out there robbing a temp, uh, grave, trying to pass off a resurrection of Jesus. They were scared out of their minds. Jesus came and stood in the midst and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Why did he show them his hands and his side? It was him. Now, evidently, this is interesting. Um, if you do a comparative study um, with the resurrected Lord and, and us, evidently there's something different about Christ's resurrected body than ours. And that is, for all of eternity, he's going to bear the scars of his death. Right? How do you know that? He had them here. Right? And in fact, um, in Roman in Revelation, John says he saw a lamb as, as having been slain, right? When the lamb came forth. Um, Christ, throughout eternity, Christ is going to, whenever you see Christ, a million years from now, when we see Christ, we're going to see the nail prints and the scar. That's going to remind us of the price. And verse 26 says, eight days later, when he's finally, when Thomas finally sees him, he has the same scar. scar, scar. Yeah. This proved that he was resurrected. Now, was it the same body that went in the grave? No, because Paul talks about how a grain of wheat falls in the ground. You don't know what the plant looks like by looking at the seed any more than I know what your glorified body is by looking at you. All right? That's the, that's the comparison that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15. And Jesus said, In peace to you, as the Father sent me, I also send you. And when he had said thus, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, people say, well, is that where they got the Holy Spirit? Yes or no? No. But what did? Uh, when did they actually get the Holy Spirit? They had Pentecost 40 days later. All right. And, of course, the Holy Spirit is the breath of God. It's called the breath of God, the pneuma, the wind. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. 23. Who's he talking to there? Well, the disciples. And what does that mean? No. Yeah. With that there, this this is a this is a crunched down version of the Great Commission, basically. Now, is this, did Christ just say these words and then that's it? No, he probably said a whole lot more to them. But the gist of it was this. When you preach the gospel and people believe, their sins are forgiven them, right? If they don't believe, what happens? Your sins are bound to you. And that's really what he's talking about there. I can tell you, I can tell you with all the authority of Scripture, if you ask Jesus to forgive you, your sins are loose. And if they're not, your sins are bound to you. That's not me binding them or loosing them, right? right? And how do you know that? Well, you got to compare this with the rest of the Gospels to understand that. 
And then, yeah. We could, um, where he says, that, um, in, in verse 22, where he says, he breathed on, breathed on them and said to them, receive I understand that the Holy Spirit didn't come until Pentecost, but the significance of him breathing on them, what's that about? I think that had to do with the pledge that the Holy Spirit would come. And really, what is the Holy Spirit? I mean, the, the, the metaphor of the Holy Spirit throughout the Gospels is what? A wind, all right, the breath of God, and 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 here's another maybe thing here. Who sent the Holy Spirit? Jesus did. The Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, I will send him to you. All right. So Christ sent the Holy Spirit. Is this similar maybe to what happened in the Old Testament times where the Holy Spirit would come upon mm -hmm. like Samson and that? particular time come well, and then leave? Well, they didn't. The Holy Spirit, because they were still stuck in the upper room 40 days later, right? They were still afraid mm -hmm. until the Holy Spirit came. But I think this is talking about in expectation. Okay. You will see. And, when, and here's the point. When did Christ say they would receive the Holy Spirit? He after he leaves. And when did Christ leave? Well, 40 days after the resurrection. Pentecost is day... 50. Right. So the Holy Spirit's not going to come till Christ leaves, but in expectation, Christ breathes on them. Because I've heard people say that that's when they received it. No. If they had received it then, you would have had Pentecost then. Right. But that doesn't make sense because Christ said the spirit of truth cannot come until I go away. You can't have both at the same time is what he's saying. You have me. When I leave, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who will take my place and be your parakletos, the paraclete, the one called alongside. So it can't be the Holy Spirit at that time because Christ was still here. Okay, that's one argument to use. Yeah. Or to... Right. Yeah, yeah. There's. It's not a ghost breathing on me. It's a physical being breathing on me. And then Thomas, who's called the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, "We've seen the Lord." So Thomas wasn't there, and all the time we've seen the Lord and Thomas, of course, being Mr. Doubting Thomas, poor guy. So unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger in the print of the nails and put my hand inside, I will not believe. Why, why do you think he said that? I think because he just considered it so fantastical mm -hmm. to have someone physically resurrected like that. It's like impossible. Not like me. You can mean, I say the same thing like Thomas. I think it shows too, yeah. I think it shows too the reality that of Christ's death had set in. They knew he was dead. What did you know? I I don't know. We'll have to ask Thomas when we get to heaven. You know, what are you thinking when you did this? But part of me, there's a part of me that that I think this is not him just doubting for the sake of doubting. I think the the death of Christ so devastated him. He wanted to believe it, but he didn't want it to be not real. 
Does that make any sense? Yeah. He didn't want to be disappointed. He said, I want to believe it, but I got to touch it. I want to. Yeah. Um, now, of course, you know, we can, Christ chided him on that because he did not believe. But I think part of it going through his mind, he, he really wanted to believe it, but he didn't want to be disappointed. You ever have that happen where you just don't want to be disappointed? You know, someone calls up and says, hey, you know, you've won uh, X thousand dollars in this uh, get-together. Well, I, when you drop up to my house and I see the check, then I'll believe it. You know, until then, you know, I don't believe it. I want to believe it, but until I get, until I got the money, I don't believe it. Says Jesus does not reject doubts that are honest and directed toward belief. It is better to doubt out loud than to disbelieve in silence. Yeah. And and by the way, later on, Christ took him up on his challenge, right? Because it said after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, saying, "Peace to you." Then he said to Thomas, "Reach your finger here and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believe." And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Did it ever say he touched him? He believed. He believed. And Jesus said, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. But that's that's an interesting point that Bart makes there. God... God is my God, God. God is less irritated with honest doubt than He is with unbelief. And if you really want to know God, He'll show Himself to you. He, he'll take you up on it. And of course, Christ appears to Thomas, and that says, verse thirty. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God that believing you might have life in his name. The key verse of the book. John says, I've just written down a little bit of what. <laughs> if I'd have wrote it all down, the books of the world would not have contained what he did. Is that maybe just um, hyperbole? Hyperbole. John, John is making a you know an exaggeration, a point there. I've just given you a little bit, folks. He said, there's so much that Jesus did. I suppose the entire books of the world wouldn't contain it all. Then after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And this way he showed himself. Now, what had happened, what evidently happened is that Jesus appeared to the, them twice. And then he didn't appear for a while, so what's Peter do? Got to earn a living somehow. So he says, I'm going fishing. Now, what it means in the Greek, and you don't see that here, is that, okay, I'm going back to... Fishing. I'm going to go back to that as my vacation. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going to go back and do some fishing. Go back to my previous vocation. Now, what's, what's on Peter's mind here as well? Last chapter, 
He was fear. But before the Jesus appeared to the twelve or the eleven, actually, the ten and then the eleven. What's percolating through Peter's mind? I denied him. I have no right in this company. I told him I wouldn't leave him, and yet when he needed me, I wasn't anywhere to be found. His uh, conscience is working on him. Then they said to him, we are going with you. So what does that tell you about Peter? He's a leader. You know, he sort of, people sort of followed him. You know, whatever he did, they sort of wanted to do too. So they went out, immediately got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. Now, where is the Sea of Tiberias? Galilee. So that's a couple of days north of Jerusalem. So they're not in Jerusalem now, are they? Now, what did Christ tell them to do? Terry in Jerusalem. So Christ has to go and retrieve them from Galilee to get them back down to Jerusalem. All right. So they got in the boat and that night they caught nothing. Now, what is what is the worst possible thing a crack fisherman can have happen to him? Not catch anything. I mean, Peter, you got to understand, Peter, this was the way he made his living. He knew how to catch fish. And he couldn't catch a fish to save his life at this point. That's got to be frustrating. They, they were there all night. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. It may have been he was a ways off, or again, Jesus was able to veil his identity. And Jesus said to him, hey, catch anything? Now that really fry you, don't you? Yeah, you're out all night trying to catch a fish, and some joker on shore is asking, to catch anything? They answered him, no. Peter didn't speak his mind. <laughs> yeah. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, if I'm in a boat, the right side and the left side, are, it's not that far apart, is it? So I'm not catching thing on the right side. Why am I going to catch something on the left side? Or if I'm not catching on the left side, why am I going to catch them on the right side? Oh, okay, so they did. And they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. You know, Christ said, come here, fish. You know, they all came. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter is the Lord. John figured out who it was. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he removed it and plunged into the sea. Where's Peter going? Sure. To shore. Peter, Peter was the kind of guy, someone once said, if you had a video camera, and you were following Christ, and Christ stopped Peter and run into his back. Peter was that close. It seems like where every Christ, wherever Christ went, Peter was right there. He wanted to be with Christ. Except when he denied him. He wanted to be with Christ. Peter was the one that got out of the boat and walked towards Christ on the water, right? Peter's the one here who jumps out of the boat. Peter wants to be with the Lord. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. So where did this fish and bread come from? Poof, you know. I guess being God of the universe, it's not that tough to create a couple of fish and some bread. Yeah, Simon Peter went up, dragged the net to land full of large fish, 
153, you know, who's that probably? The bean counter. You always got a bean counter in a group, right? Well, Philip, or which, so who's the one that said, well, Lord, we just got this kid here with two loaves and it was, it was, uh, what's an Andrew Philip or Nathaniel? I can't remember, but, uh, they counted them out. And there's, although there's so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Then Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. This is now the third time. See, that's what happened. He appeared to them twice, right? And then he didn't appear for a few days or maybe a couple of weeks. So what's Peter thinking? Well, I got to earn a living. You know, I can't stay here all the time. Ooh, I like that. I love these ringtones. You know, everybody has a different. But um, this is the third time Jesus appears to them. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jodah, do you love me more than these? These what? Well, there's some, you know, some suggest that, well, the, the, the idea of these here is these other disciples. Or some have said, it's, do you love me more than this vocation? I think could be sort of both. Do you love me more than these other guys? Because what did Peter say? I love you more than anybody. So Jesus asked him, do you love me? Why is Jesus doing this to Peter? There's some unfinished business, isn't there? There's some unfinished business. Peter, the last interaction Peter really had with the Lord was, in deny, was to deny him. And unless Peter was restored, he could never do what Christ wanted him to do, could he? There had to be a mending of the relationship. Peter, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Lord, you know that I like you. Two different words for love. Christ said, do you agape me? And he says, I phileo you. I like you. I have strong affection for you. Because what is agape love? Agape love is self-sacrificial love. He couldn't claim that, could he? Because he just blown it. Right. So what, if anything, what did Peter now get? I've got a big mouth and i got to learn to keep it shut and not raise expectations that I can't fulfill. Lord, you know that I like you. You know that I have deep affection for you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Okay, Peter, if you like me, even if you like me, feed my lambs. Then he asked him a second time, John, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Now it's what? Do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know that I have affection for you. Peter is, is um, telling Christ, well, you know what I am. You know that I have deep affection for you. It's not the agape love. It's not self-sacrificial love, but I have a deep 
affection for you. And Christ said, well, tend my sheep. If you love me, tend my sheep. And then he said to him the third time, son of Simon, son of Jodah, do you have affection for me? Matthew, Christ made the you love me, so you came more close to okay. The, okay, Christ says, do you agape me? He says, I phileo you. Second time, Christ says, do you agape me? He says, I phileo you. The third time, Christ says, do you even phileo me? So what's what's he what's Peter getting the hint? Christ is asking permission. Or that Christ is saying, Do you really? You say you do. Do you really believe that? Mm-hmm. The last time Peter says, You know I You know all things, you know that I have have you. I have affection for you. I have affection for you. What's Peter? And you say, well, you know, what's going on here? Well, Peter is finally. What's Peter have to admit? His love wasn't as deep as he thought he had. No, it's I. Not a sacrificial love. No. Christ had. I have deep affection for you. And did Christ accept that? Yeah, he did. Yeah. And Jesus said, "Feed my sheep." Even if you like me, feed my sheep. Now, why is Christ saying to feed his sheep? What's he commissioning Peter to do? Leader, service, right? He's not tossing Peter out. Peter's been broken, and what's Christ trying to do? Restore him. Even if you like me, feed my sheep. Feed them. Be a shepherd to them. And Peter, in 1 Peter, talks about him being a an elder, a shepherd, right? Elder, feeding the flock. In order to do that, though, wouldn't you have to have the agape love then for the sheep? Well, you know, that's a good question. Go home, look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, do you love God? Agape. Do you agape God? You know, if I I have to admit this, I know you think I sound like a heretic. If I looked in the mirror, I'd have to say, do I agape God? And the answer is probably not. Because I don't have it within my ability to love him like that. I wish I did. But can I confidently look at myself in the mirror and say, I agape God? Because as soon as I say that, what's going to happen? You test and fail. Now, can I say I have a deep affection and love for God and I want to love God? Yeah, I want to love him. In fact, John says we love him because he first loved us. That's something only you can answer. The disciples who get commissioned and my sheep, Peter has to do it. I've got to love Peter. No. 
Can do you love like God loves? You can't. Really, it's in our nature always being loved in the phileo realm. Well, Agape love has its source, God. That's its source. It's not you. We cannot agape love in and of ourselves because it is tainted by our own selfish motives. Only God can agape love. And only as God works through us can we even exhibit any level of agape love. But it's really not us. It's the Holy Spirit who's, who's as it says in Romans chapter 5, the love of God is shed abroad in hearts by the Holy Spirit who gives us that ability. We don't have it. I don't think we have within ourselves the love at the at the agape level. I'm wondering this challenge here that Christ has given us here. I mean, perhaps it's a way of saying, do you really, you know, that flail me? If you really just do that, I'll do it. Right. I'll bring you into the agape right. through the Holy Spirit right. as you mature. But I'm right. serious about the phileo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, can we have agape love? But where do we get it? Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And then Christ says, him, well, most assuredly I say to you, but you're younger, you girded yourself, walk where you wish, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. When he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. What did Christ tell Peter? What's going to happen to Peter someday? He's going to die for... Now... You're Peter. How would you take that? But you're Peter, right? And just a few days earlier, you were bloviating about how everybody was going to leave the Lord and you would follow him even to what? And what happened when the going got rough? You bailed. What's Christ promising him here? The next time you will not bail. So if you're Peter, how would you feel? Vindicated. Not vindicated. Strengthened. Forgiven. Restored. Christ is saying, there's going to come a day when you're going to stretch out your hands. And of course, he's referring to crucifixion. And we know from secular history, Peter was crucified. Upside down, as it, as, as it says. And he wasn't going to fail the next time. I mean, think about it. You know, let, let's say, pretend God showed up to you and said, you know, Lord, you know, I'm going to, I'm not, no matter what happens, I'm going to do this. And you blow up big time. And then he shows up again and he says, well, the next time you're not going to fail. How would you feel? I feel good about it. I'm not going to fail. I'm not going to fail. 
And he said to him, follow me. Peter's restoration is complete here. Follow me. And what did Peter do? Peter followed him. But as he was following, verse 20, turned around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter seeing him said to him, but Lord, what about this guy? And I love Christ's answer. If I will that he remain till I come, what's that to you? You follow me. Don't worry about the other guy. Worry about you. See, our problem in Christianity, we always like to worry about the other guy. God says worry about yourself. Take heed to yourself and to your doctrine. Look at yourself. And, of course, he said this. Well, if he sticks around till I come, what's it to you? Come follow me. Then this, this, this is interesting. I thought about this a little while. Then this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what's that to you? So what's the rumor going out? He's not going to die. Now, when did John write the Gospel of John? Yeah. 80s, maybe. When did he write Revelation? 95, 96, all right. So did John stick around till the Lord came back, in a sense? Sure he did. He saw it. He saw it. So that's, that's another way to understand this. But Christ is really, it's really an exaggeration. If I want him to stick around till I come back, what's it to you? Follow me. Did Peter follow him? Yes, he did. Don't you think, too, that tells each one of us that our relationship with God is a personal, unique relationship that's dependent only on my and God's relationship. And mm -hmm. what God does with you or with this person or that person is between them and God. Right. Worry about yourself. And this is the disciple who testified of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. John says, I'm not a liar. And there are many other things Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I mean, John, and it's interesting here, John defined himself as what? The disciple whom, how did Peter define himself? The disciple who loved Jesus. A little bit of a difference there. You ever think about that? And whenever, whenever we, you know, fall into the trap of pride, saying, "Well, no matter what happens, I'll stick it out," you're dead meat. You're done for. I mean, it's just a matter of time before you fall because we cannot, in and of ourselves, have victory. There's only the Holy Spirit that grants us victory. Other than that, we can't win. Well, that's the Gospel of John. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.